Hi, I am John. Welcome to my podcast of Letters of the Oracle to the Church of the Unknown Christians and to all the saints scattered, of God scattered abroad. I want to welcome you all. Okay, I need to reiterate now something for those who perhaps have not heard the earlier or previous podcasts. Each podcast is a stepping stone across a large chasm of mystery and revelation. And so what I would really like you to do is to listen in sequence from podcast number one right through to the end of the series. That way you'll get the full context and the foundational issues that are required in establishing the concept and the theses um, of what the Lord has been speaking to me and others so that you can follow and not suddenly hear something that you've never heard before or not considered before or not heard anyone share or speak about these issues. All right, so with that out of the way, let's get into the podcast 11, what the gospel is according to God, not according to man's concepts or our preconceived ideas, but let's take a fresh look at what the gospel is according to God. Now, this follows some of the issues that I shared in the last podcast about people who through their own ignorance and not knowing any better because they've just followed traditions without checking to see if those traditions are godly or biblical about the things that are not the gospel things that are preached and taught today that are not the gospel so I want to now come to the positive side of the scriptures and show what the gospel is according to God first and foremost <clears throat> we need to understand and know and this is laid out over the course of these of the series God has decided ahead of time who will follow Jesus who he wants to obey the gospel and who he wants made righteous because he decides this ahead of time himself not us we do not choose God he chooses us and when he calls us or invites us into his presence or to come to get to know him our job is to obey our responsibility is to obey or not to obey so we don't choose God we don't choose our father our father has chosen to bring us forth and so again I must reiterate the scriptures only show that God decides ahead of time who will follow Jesus the father calls us invites us and he, who, who he wants to obey the gospel is up to him. You don't decide. He decides who he wants made righteous. 
He has decided all this ahead of time, before he created anything, before the foundation of the world, not us. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. In John 6, verses 44 through 45, it states that No man, Jesus said, can come to me, except the Father which has sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall all, or they shall be all, taught of God. Every man, therefore, that that has heard and has learned of the Father comes to me. And then in John 14, 6, Jesus explains, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So we can see it's all the triune God's decision, not ours. The decision we must make is to obey, learn to pay attention to our Father, to our elder brother Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. We also read in Romans 9.18, So then, God has mercy on whomever he wants to, and he makes stubborn whomever he wants to. So don't think you can just come and choose God and choose to serve or choose to love God at any old time that it suits you. God the Father does not work in such a ad hoc way regarding us, his children, regarding you and I. Then for further references on this, which I'll just give you because I, I don't have time to read them, John fifteen sixteen Acts 1, 24, Acts 9, 15, Acts 10, 41, Ephesians 1, 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, and 1 Peter 2, 9, and Revelation 17, 4. So again, I reiterate, we have a choice to either obey his call or to disobey his call, and then bear the consequences either way. So when our Father calls us, we just run to him. He will then tell us what we are to do, and he will begin to teach and nurture and nourish us through the Holy Spirit and his anointing. Because the triune God, his anointing has been given to us so that we might know all things. Well, the gospel is the good news of the love of God from the God of love. This is the foundation of the good news, the gospel. He reaches out to his family, his children, who became alienated from him via his adversaries. This was done deliberately by God for our benefit, for our growth and development. We need adversaries in life in order to grow and become strong and find out who we are, what we're like, where our weaknesses are, where our strengths are, where the natural man fails us all the time and where the spiritual man always brings us into victory by conquering again and again and by overcoming all the things that Jesus himself overcame. So this was after he intentionally sent his children abroad into a universal or worldwide realm outside of paradise among his adversaries, 
for our education as his children. It was not new to them or us, as God the Father had placed an adversary for this very purpose in the Garden of Eden, to fuel the first act of disobedience in Adam. Think about it. Why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the, in the midst of the garden and then tell Adam that in the day he eats of that he will die? Why did he put the serpent advocate of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden to talk and, and, and make sure the benefits of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was sold to Eve because the serpent knew Adam would not listen to him. But Eve was still intrigued by all of the creatures that Adam had already studied. So the Father wants to bring each of us from disobedience, our default state inherited from the first Adam and the first man, into obedience, as learnt by the Lord Jesus Christ himself as the last Adam. Jesus Christ becomes our eternal inheritance from him, the last Adam, in the second man, now our new man, as spoken of in Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10. By each one of us, eventually choosing to utilize all the resources the Father has given us in his only begotten and beloved Son. This is done in order to bring us home after his graduation, our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the second man, after God has brought him home, after his graduation into glory and splendor, by following his course of obedience to love him and each other, and the, we can't love him if we don't learn to love each other. He makes that very clear. With the same divine love that he and the Father have. All of this is accomplished by God, beginning with his inaugural, his only begotten and firstborn son, with him being revealed in two incontrovertible forms. First, the natural, in the anti-anointing, the antichrist, the death of the logos, the death of the Christ, the death of the anointing. Then the spiritual, in the anointing, the Christ, the eternal life of the logos, the resurrected life, the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, so it's past tense, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die thereafter. So God chose experience to give us our wisdom, knowledge, understanding and comprehension, all for our growth and development. It's not by desk learning or by rote or by scripture memorization and observation, not by studying all the traditions of the church. This can quickly develop into human opinions of great argument and can often produce heated disputes, becoming a cause of abuse and even murder or death, not just physical consequences in that. Hence, we need to see what God has provided for us, our Father has provided for us in Jesus. Being yoked with Jesus, we are told, the last Adam, in his love, gives us his experience, his wisdom, comprehension, understanding, knowledge of God, knowledge, God's knowledge, not just of God, but knowledge that is God's knowledge, by overcoming all he overcame. 
This is so much more excellent than all those who speak with the tongues of men and of angels full of opinions and who do not know love. By comparison, they're just tinkling brass and clanging cymbals with loud, uncertain sounds without meaningful internal accomplishment. In fact, for most, it's not even considered. It's all outward and it's all pushed in an outward form so that your outward behavior can be seen to match the traditions so therefore you're counted worthy you've passed their exams their their tests you've passed their scrutiny and you get your diploma or your degree and you get your accolades and you're now an expert in some area and so you get promoted no that's not how our father works or how he wants us to be or become as his children Nothing wrong with doing that in the natural realm for the natural reasons. But they won't buy you anything in the realm of God, in the spiritual realm where our Father wants us to live. So these clanging and tinkling brass and clanging cymbals of loud uncertain sounds, they result in the hearers being no better off than they were before they heard anything. And possibly worse off because it leaves us often struggling with falsehoods and lies by a hierarchical system that God's love destroys. That's not good news for some by any standard, but love without experience or works of love is empty, hollow and dead. Just like we're told faith without works is dead, like the body without the spirit is dead. So God proves his love by his works of love toward us, because God is love. And so will we. We will prove the evidence of the love of God, the God love that the Father and the Son have for each other. Because we will also have, by hard experience, the love that enables us to love our enemies and to do good to those who abuse us and despitefully use us without them damaging us. Because God's love and His Word protects us by the power of the Spirit and the anointing within us. In order for people to comprehend and understand the gospel of God as love, as seen in 1 John 4.8 and verse 16, and love as God in 1 John 4.7, there will have to be, and it has already begun, thank goodness, a complete reboot of embedded human thinking with a new mind. The gospel that God has loved is the very and only foundation of the gospel and it embraces the fullness of God's kingdom realm. And it, it's a realm of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, we're told, on earth today for all of us humans whom our God has called and invited to know by experience. Now, this real inward knowing is caused by experience with God, which impacts us and changes us within. It is not knowledge by rote, that is, education about God, which has little or no, or no effect on us or within us, except perhaps to inflate or puff us up. Because naturally, human egos are trying to be less anti and more pro-Christ, from which we need to be saved. That's the, one of the problems. We're trying to do in the flesh or in the natural realm what can only be accomplished by the anointing in the Spirit. And so it's 
from the natural realm, we need to be saved. Instead, it is an eternal knowing. An eternal knowing. Get, get a hold of this. It's an eternal knowing from a yoked learning, forming a powerful innate awareness internally caused by experience with God in being yoked with God in Christ, our co-anointing in the Holy Spirit. You remember Jesus said his yoke of learning is easy, not heavy like the law, and his knowledge is not burdensome, but light and unencumbered. Unlike the law, there's no script to remember or memorize and follow in order to avoid death. We are anointed in God our Father by the triune God's Holy Spirit. And in this anointing is our new mind. Thank God. Praise God for our new mind. This is required for a full and comprehensive knowledge of the realm of God, for instantaneous thought from God in our new mind. Think about that. This was also in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. It is our new consciousness as children of God with its outworking witnessed in the book of Acts as it is in our own life and living, or should be if it's not already. The New Testament reveals the activities, preaching and teaching of the apostles yoked together in and with Christ, not a script, but an anointing with a new mind, the mind of Christ, only in the anointing. The yoke today is the Lord's anointing, the Christ of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very important. Remember Jesus told his disciples that when, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit and have received the fullness of the Holy Spirit and begin to live and operate in the kingdom realm of the Spirit with the anointing of God, when they're brought before the courts and before the Pharisees, the scribes, and all the, the Roman courts and everything, whenever they're challenged, he told them, don't even try to think beforehand what you should say or, 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 should, or try and write down all the things you need to read to these people. Don't try to anticipate what you should be saying to these who ridicule you, mock you, or question you, or abuse you, or try to find a way to put you in jail, etc. He said, because the Holy Spirit will give you in the same hour, the anointing will give you at the moment of need, at the moment of needing the word, the living word, the answer. The Holy Spirit will give you the utterance and what you need to say instantaneously, and it will flow like a river out of your heart, out of your innermost being, out of your new consciousness, your new mind, which is the mind of Christ. And you won't have to think it up. It will be spontaneous. And you'll bring to nothing, you'll bring to naught the power of the enemy. We've got the best examples of this in the book of Acts. And one of the martyrs, one of the first martyrs, Stephen, is a prime example of a man filled with the Holy Spirit, recognized among the people, recognized among the church in Jerusalem, amongst the people as a man full of the Holy Spirit and much wisdom. And when he 
stood up before all of the those who were accusing him and the members of the of the body of Christ and wanting to take them all to task, put them away. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, speaks to them with an utterance that absolutely shredded their arguments and shredded their mindsets to the point where they couldn't they had to block their ears. They didn't want to hear it because it so convicted them. And it says they put their fingers in their ears and they gnashed on him with their teeth. And they dragged him out of the city so they could stone him to death. And that was because of the testimony, the witness he gave of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. The second man that he was now full of, the same spirit, same mind, same anointing. And that's what God wants each one of us to have developed in us. So, it cannot be just an update of new software, like new doctrine. I'm not sharing new doctrine. I'm not sharing new teaching. This has been in the Word of God for thousands of years, for, for, for written by many different saints of God. So I'm not sharing new doctrine. I'm not sharing new teaching. So we're not looking for an update in new software like doctrine or even a Holy Spirit-led upgrade of our operating system, the church institutions. We're not trying and don't need to establish another church, a new institution, a new denomination, because the Lord has been building his church right from the day he ascended and the Spirit was poured out on all flesh for this purpose. So he's given us a comprehensive new hard drive, a new wineskin called the Spirit, with full of the Holy Spirit, the new wine, the anointing, causing a major shift of mind. This is done by us humans moving away from the old mind, often called the old man, for the purpose of accessing the new mind. This is the true meaning of repentance toward God. What's the point of repenting if you just stay with the old mind? You're not going to do anything different. If you just use the old mind and say, I'm sorry, I won't do that again, I, I, I repent, but you keep using the old mind, you're just going to get what you've always got, problems, more disobediences. So to operate in obedience, we have to use our new mind. This is promised and orchestrated by God within us, and it is written on a clean slate or new hard drive, our new mind, as it were, by the anointing in the spirit of our mind. It can be found, as I've shared, within our new wineskin, the spirit, the last Adam, and far away from the primary sequence of events that we, the people, have attached to ourselves in our old wineskin, the soul, the first Adam, which is marked out by God, for required salvation and restoration, incidentally. In other words, the salvation of our souls by God is mandatory. Nobody can escape it. The primary narrative of the first man, of the first Adam, the soul, is a naturally driven consciousness, which conditions us like a virus, so to speak. It's a virus the Bible calls sin. It's not who we are, but a found state, something we have been immersed into and thus absorbed as the default state of every human being via the first Adam. 
This default state or found state in all of us is known biblically as disobedience and will kill our true selves, our souls, if left unattended and therefore unchanged. It must be changed from within us internally, as well as having this default state overcome by us externally. So I'm not just talking about making the odd right decision here for the Lord, such as the well-intentioned messages galore and the song, I have decided to follow Jesus, quote-unquote. We're not proposing that the natural man can decide to be spiritual, because in our natural selves, that is an impossibility. As Jesus said in John 3.6, the natural man can only give birth to natural things. Only the spiritual man can give birth to spiritual things. We have to teach our soul to follow the Spirit. And to do that, we must be born from above. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Otherwise, we remain in the first Adam, our soul, without the ability to know and follow the Spirit of God within. As Paul the Apostle said in Romans 8.14, Those who are led by the Spirit, these and none but these, are the children of God. Here, we're talking about the state or natural way of life of disobedience toward God and the divine nature of God inherent in the first Adam, our soul. In the New Testament, it says we cannot please God given that the soul in its natural state is the enemy of God and is completely anti-anointing or anti-Christ. It is also our own enemy, our own personal enemy, the Satan, the adversary, that we have to deal with. For example, the Apostle Peter's anti-testimony when Jesus calls him Satan or adversary, because the word Satan translated is the plural word for adversaries, plural. So we have many adversaries. There are many Satans out there, big ones and little ones, powerful ones and accusers and people who randomly throw fiery darts at us to try and upset our faith. So we have this anti-anointing, this anti-Christ nature called sin within us until the soul is converted and fully saved. And it must be converted and saved after we are born again so that we can live in the obedience of the spiritual man and the anointing in Christ of the last Adam. You remember Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of the world, the flesh, the natural man. And he talked to Peter and he said to Peter when he was questioning after he had risen from the dead and he's talking to the disciples before he ascended, he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. And, and, and he and he says, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. So Peter's soul had not been yet on the pathway of conversion, being saved. It didn't happen until the day of Pentecost, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So that is, from that moment on, his soul is being converted and transformed. And he, he writes very clearly in his epistle. And he says, you know, 
When our soul is fully saved, that completes our faith. The end of our faith, he said, is the salvation of our souls. So that ends our faith. Or completes the faith for the soul to be converted. Once the soul is fully converted or fully saved, then that completes the work of faith. So this realm, this removal of the realm of disobedience includes our fear of failure to fulfill our new state of obedience that can only be overcome by a greater spiritual power that God has given us in this new realm, in the new Adam, in the last Adam, the new man, I should say. A power called the spirit of power of love and of a sound mind. Why is it that? Because it is the mind of Christ. It comes from the spirit of God, God the spirit. It comes from the love of God, God is love. And it comes from the soundest mind in heaven and in earth, in the universe, the sound mind, the mind of Christ. Only in the anointing, which is only in Christ. Second Timothy one seven and First Corinthians two, fourteen through sixteen. If you need to look up those references. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, the default state of disobedience, often referred to throughout the Bible as the realm or state of sin, is an imp- an imprisoning and controlling power which attacks the very foundation of love by its darkness and pain of dis-ease. Falsely dictating that this is who we are, wicked sinners, who God somehow loves, and we try to hide that wickedness in many ways and forms, but God sees it all. And he wants to deal with it. This is why we refer to the triune Godhead's love as an unconditional love when it is not. But for one exception, unconditional love brought us to birth, to be born naturally and spiritually. After which it is all about the triune God's love conditions regarding us. We have thought that it must be unconditional. Otherwise, how could Godhead love such wicked sinners driven by sin? Confirmed by natural observation, extreme peer pressure from all of those around us, especially our families and our co-workers, etc. We see and hear this promoted by today's pulpit teaching, lawyers, scribes and Pharisees, along with the new state religion of social justice, where everyone is wrong, bad, evil, wrong colour, wrong race, whatever. And so we've got all this to deal with. Now, you've got all this coming from the pulpits, from social welfare right through to our governments, church governments, institutional governments, schools, universities, you name it, because we are all at fault and we all need to be, well, you know, we, we've, we've, we've got to, you know, go and hide from those who are more righteous than us. This is what they're getting at. Well, don't confuse these people with the Lord's genuine ministry gifts and messengers, warning us about the slow and temporary default state of sin, which we need to learn to overcome in order to become obedient to the way, the truth, and the life found only 
in the anointing of our Lord Jesus Christ and outworked in us by the same anointing because it comes from within us. It's not doesn't come from without. It comes from within. So if we're not tapping into that fountain of life, that well springing up from within, that anointing that we've all been given, the realm of the kingdom that we need to learn from within, then we'll struggle on in the natural man, the old man's mind, full of the world's ideas and the traditions of ungodly people. It's seriously important, my brother, my sister, however, to know that our triune God had loved us long before we ever became wicked sinners, which is why the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me did so while we were disobedient and therefore sinners and ungodly in the sinful, ungodly, low, default state. This is why Jesus Christ also died for us in obedience to love in order to loosen or wash us from our, from our sins in his own blood, as described in Revelation 1.5. And all for the purpose we then read about in verse 6 of Revelation 1, which brings us all up to the present new day of the Lord, the last Adam, the second man, the ascension for us. And verse 6 says, And has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Our eternal state is planned by the triune Godhead and is first spoken or prophesied in Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3 concerning all creation to be our realm of dominion, but not as ignorant and inexperienced disobedient children of the first Adam in ignorance and self acceptance of the natural realm and self-greed and avariceness and all the jealousies and envies and strifes that are found in this lowered state. But as kings and priests of the last Adam, forever and ever. And he goes on to say, Behold, he comes with clouds of kings and priests, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the first Adam, and the ending, the last Adam, says the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1, 7 and 8. Note the text in the parenthesis when you're reading this in the book. And these verses has been inserted by me, submitting my interpretation based on context. I just want you to know that I have inserted an interpretation that's confirmed by what's written before and after. Okay, this assumed sinful human with its false foundation and assumed counterfeit identity based on our found state has been falsely promoted for centuries. In real terms, it is nothing more than an indicator of a baby in childhood state, as profound as that is, of natural development and thinking that is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, found right back in the garden of God, deliberately put there by God for our benefit. This should be changing within us daily by the anointing within us toward our triune Godhead's thinking from the tree of life, 
by eating our new daily bread and water of life from heaven that Jesus spoke about in John 6, 32. He said that he is heaven's descending and living bread by which we must eat and live, John 6, 35 and 41. As we journey with our Father into spiritual maturity and adulthood of the soul, overcoming all that is called sin, by learning obedience as his begotten ones, his children, that is, into sonship. We must therefore listen to our Father and the full triune Godhead's gospel with their love fully embedded in the eternal word, the Logos in Christ, the anointing which our Godhead embedded before any created thing within the last Adam, within the first Adam, but could not appear until the seed fell into the ground and died. This was embedded before the very foundation of the world. Our triune God is now proclaiming and writing the Logos in our hearts and inscribing it in our new minds as promised by the Father through the prophets. Jeremiah 31, 33, Hebrews 8, 10 through 13 and other places and their love for all of us, their children, including every created thing in our Godhead's universe, all waiting for us, the manifestation of the children of God. Therefore, we must eat this new loaf, the bread of heaven, John 6, 31 through 35. Drink this new water of life, which is called the Word, Ephesians 5, 26, Titus 3, 5. And the new wine, which is called the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18, Luke 22, 20, 1 Corinthians 11, 25, 26. All from heaven, not the natural realm of earth. And provided by the triune Godhead's love for us, through the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And it's found within us. We don't look out there. It's not in a mountain, Jesus said. It's not in a temple. It's not in a city. It's within us. Historically, the false narrative about ourselves was adopted by us from early childhood around the time of the first Adam, who incidentally lived for nearly nine, well, he did live for 930 years outside the garden. And then it was adopted personally by all of us since our arrival on earth. We have been taught that it was caused by one man, Adam, as if this was our terrible, disgusting, awful, stupid and willful beginning in the sum total of our whole life. To think that Adam, the first man, originated or created sin is to believe God created a flawed human being with a huge fault called sin that was inbuilt into his character, awaiting fruition with disobedience being the trigger for germination. Or that we believe Godhead could not create the realm themselves for their son's learning, as some teach, and so needed an imperfect man to do it for them. That's how incapable God was using disobedience as the detonation of descent into a world of sin with sin's intrinsic life itself causing our spiritual death. But we can be very clear, very clear, that God did not create a flawed human body being. They created a perfect body being and then breathed their own perfect soul life through their own perfect spirit into this man, this first Adam. And so man became a living soul, the soul of God, 
from God, born of God, with the full potential to learn as a newly born being with a totally ignorant soul life, possessing a great need for experience now. Adam wasn't born innocent. He was born ignorant. This state of ignorance is the lowered state, so that Adam, with all his children, could all be given the full schooling that all Godhead's children deserve, without compromising the freedom of ignorance or its intimidating reserved disobedience. Ignorance is not a flaw. It is a necessity of all new, unconfined, non-robotic, non-pre-programmed life. You've got to get hold of this understanding. Ignorance, from Godhead's perspective, is to be seen as freedom in an endless, topless container, our soul, in order to be filled with all the fullness of God, once completely prepared by freedom himself, the only begotten Son of God. Only a knowledgeable person or person of experience can be found in either innocence or guilt. Godhead had already prepared an antidote for this ignorant man due to the long descent into death as Godhead's first seed planting of his family tree. This was in order to expand every faculty of soul to the deepest deepening root and to the highest peaking branch to increase Adam's and therefore all his children's capacity, yours and mine, and each one's capability, yours and mine, in order to produce many, many children with infinite, inherent diversity as desired by our Father God. And the antidote, incidentally, is found in Romans 6.23 via the last Adam. It says, of course, everyone knows this verse, unfortunately, and not a lot of others. Well, fortunately they know it, but it's unfortunate they don't know the rest. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, here's the antidote, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin pays a wage, it's called death. But the antidote is far superior to the poison and to the death that it sin causes. And that is the gift of God, the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The lowering of all creation spoken about by Paul the Apostle in, of Jesus in Romans 8 happened when the only begotten Son of God stripped himself of all reputation and gave up the honor and glory he had with the Father before the world began and appeared as the first Adam, the first man, in a complete state of ignorance to become the first living soul on earth in a temporary body. We also read about this in Philippians 2, 7 and 8. He was in the form of God from the beginning, it says. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. Instead, he stripped himself of his reputation by becoming like a slave servant and taking on the portrait of the eternal appearance of a human. He humbled himself, listening to God right through to the point of death, the death 
of the cross. And in John 17, 1 through 5, Jesus said, Father, in his prayer, Father, the time has come. Give your Son honor and glory so that your Son may give you honor and glory. You gave him authority over all humankind so that he would give eternal life to all those you have given him. This is eternal life, that they would come to know you, the only true God, and Jesus, the Anointed One, whom you sent. I have certainly brought you honor and glory on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, give me the honor I had in your own presence, the honor that I had with you before the world began. So that's where Jesus gave, gave it up. That's where the only begotten Son of God gave up the glory before the world began. And now at the, as he's about to go to the cross, he's praying to the Father about himself and about his disciples and about the whole world. You need to read that chapter if you haven't already done it. John 17. Now, Father, give me back the honor and the glory that I had with you before the world began. So now, if Adam, the first man, had been perfectly and robotically programmed in an intrinsically controlled default state, that is, to be obedient without question and needed no schooling, he could never have disobeyed and become sin and come short of the measure of God's glory, as declared in Romans 3.23. God did not form a body from dust for a perfectly programmed robot, but for a son of like kind as themselves. This was a child who would need to learn obedience in order to experience a life that is the same as its father's life, with the same attributes as its father, in relationship development, in fellowship of spirit, and in partnership of soul, utilizing the same mind, the mind of Christ, the anointing, who teaches us all things. 1 John 2.27, 1 Corinthians 2.16, Colossians 1, 9, chapter 2, 2 and 3, chapter 3, verse 10. You need to read those verses. They're very helpful. So, this raises the questions that people have asked me. What if this was God's purpose all along, ensuring disobedience was our default state from the beginning? And more importantly, how on earth would we learn obedience without first having the potential and the push to learn from God the Father to be disobedient. This default state of disobedience of all newborns, in order to be found ignorant and naked in his presence, needs a temporary covering, training and discipline, plus our Father's understanding and godly knowledge in order to produce an eternal result. This is all provided for us as his children by him, until Godhead has finished generating and schooling their children, as well as providing our eternal clothing of light to put on, which is called in metaphor the new man, that is the new Adam, who is fully clothed, we are told, in righteousness and holiness of the truth, with the holiness of the anointing, Ephesians 4.24 and 5.19. But look, We've never been allowed by men to let go of the standard narrative of of Genesis, which is promoted as Christian doctrine. 
of the Genesis scenarios. Interpreted and endorsed by egotistical men where the first man, Adam, stuffed up God's plan according to Adam's descendants. Men's doctrine, of course, has not come from God's perspective for a great number of reasons, some of which are initiated by God and His overall wisdom and purpose. Yet, we have clearly been shown that we came into being in triune love. We were shown the way of triune love, the truth of triune love, and the very life of triune love, all from triune love himself, by and through the last Adam, the second man. He is now the head of the full and ultimate body of Christ, thus becoming the new home, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly mother of us all. And Paul speaks about in Galatians 4.26. This is all born into being and built together in love out of the triune Godhead's love, which is seen descending out of heaven from God onto the triune Godhead's new earth and its new heavens, dressed as a bride, the Lamb's wife, adorned for her husband. And this is what it says, And the Spirit and the bride, a new creation, a new amalgam, a new body, a new city, built in love by the triune Godhead through our Lord Jesus Christ. They say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst, Come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The call and the invitation is now being made by the Spirit and the Bride and by those who can hear to those who thirst and to those who will take the water of life freely. Otherwise, there will be no growth, no development. Thus, our Lord Jesus Christ is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first Adam and the last Adam. He is the first man, the one who descended into the lower parts of the earth in order to capture all men in this lowered state. This was through his default state of disobedience by which he became sin, as seen in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The first Adam the natural man of the triune Godhead's way of beginning the journey of building their new home with us and in us. He is the second man, the one born of a woman in order to redeem all who were under the law, the Jews, the Israelites, and all who were without the law, the Gentiles, and the heathen. When he had learned obedience in fullness to the death of the cross, he ascended to the highest of heavens and led all of captivity captive now into his obedience, the last Adam, the head, and the triune Godhead's way of ending and completing the journey into the triune sonship by transformation, the triune fullness, and the glory of love. I will end this podcast here and I will see you in the next, where we will talk and discuss the full constitution of the only begotten Son of God revealed so far. God bless you.